Thank you so much, and please be seated. We finish our, our brief study this evening of why we need shepherds. We began uh, looking at another one of the pastoral epistles, seeing the command to, to, to Timothy to watch your life and doctrine closely. For if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And we considered the great importance, the great power that we have been given in the Christian life, especially, of course, those who are uh, elders of the church, uh, those who are teachers of others, those who are parents, those who in a very direct way are shepherding other people's hearts. The great power that we are given in the lives of others, even for salvation and what is required for that. We then turn to Titus to see how Paul laid this out for the whole church. The first chapter, we considered principally the matter of elders and their role to play. In the second chapter, how everyone, the older women, the older men, even the younger, even the servants, uh, all have their role to play to lead others to the truth of God, to adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. And uh, finally now in chapter 3, we consider this strong emphasis, already mentioned, but here uh, hit one more time hard, that all the people, every last one, should devote themselves to good works. Let's uh, read together from Titus chapter 3, from the word of the Lord. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying. And these things, I want you to affirm constantly that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. But avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. When I send Artemis to you or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Send Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their journey with haste, that they may lack nothing. And let our people also learn to maintain good works and to meet urgent needs, that they may not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. Let us pray once more. Our Father, we pray that the goodness of this word and the God in whom we have believed should continue to remain and abide 
in our very souls, that from the inside out we might be a people zealous and abundant in good works to the glory of your name, that people may see our good works and glorify you, even as our Lord taught us, in whose name we pray. Amen. In the 1920s, a man named Frank Bachman started what he called the Oxford Group, later renamed the Moral Rearmament. Hmm. It was a group that emphasized absolutes for living. Absolute unselfishness, absolute love. Uh, The movement got a lot of press and made an impact, even a deep impact at the moment, and challenged many people to devote themselves to be good, upright, moral people. It taught you that you did not need to be a Christian or have faith in anyone else but yourself. You would simply be able to strive for goodness and achieve it. Now, you've heard of this movement, right? No. Nobody, nobody's heard of the Oxford group or the moral rearmament? Well, where is it now, you ask? And what lasting impression did it make? What, what impression did it leave on our lives? Well, so many such movements like it could be named... Uh, the truth is, it quickly dissipated. The communist movement, the French Revolution, and so on, all started with high ideals of goodness, they claimed, unselfishness and love. Uh, What was the cry of the French Revolution? Um, uh, Liberty, egality, fraternity. Uh, Later, a man said, if I saw what was done in the name of brotherhood, I would rather be a cousin than a brother, right? Uh, Such movements, of course, uh, name true ideals, but find that they cannot sustain them. They do not recognize the power of sin, nor do they have an ultimate answer to it, and so they are destined to fail. As one writer says, there are many who will nod their heads in approval of the Christian life, who even profess to admire love and a life of love for others, but have no interest in a life of daily dependence on God, of looking to God, of trusting in the power of God, by which alone, the scripture says, a life of love can be truly lived. They like the fruit of the gospel, but they like not the root from which it springs, J.C. Ryle. Well, that was certainly an issue in Crete. Crete was a civilization, as we've seen, that had its major issues in the first century. It was a a place that was a cradle of civilization in so many ways. The, The great civilization of the Minoans had risen, but then ultimately had failed there. And when a society's vision of itself and its future and ideals begins to collapse, people are left confused and disoriented. The ideals of truth and justice, virtue, love toward men had lost credibility long since in Crete. And there's an urgency, therefore, from the apostle that the doctrine of God our Savior may go forth from this church, not just to be credible, But as he said in the previous chapter, attractive, beautiful. We need elders, he said in chapter 1, who will shut the mouths of people who are leading whole households astray and teaching things that are leading people to ruin. We need saints, chapter 2, who will adorn the gospel and, more importantly even, teach others to do the same. We need teachers of good things, chapter 2, verse 3. We need those who are a pattern of good works, 
chapter 2, verse 7. We need, verse 10, those who will adorn the doctrine of God in all things. And we need to get the older, more mature to be able to train the younger, not merely to believe, but to adorn that gospel as they do so. The two common words for good in the Greek appear here ten times. And good works are clearly Paul's repeated emphasis. All of God's people are to devote themselves to good works in the world and so be leaders in that sense in the advance of the gospel. But Paul describes in this chapter not only the need for good works a few times, but in the center he describes the great engine of those good works. And he does so in a beautiful and striking way. We ourselves, verse 3, were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, including himself, living in malice, envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Well, I'd like to cover this for you in just two parts, the, the power of the gospel and the product of the gospel. Its power and its product we'll be seeing this evening. First, the power. That, that description of our salvation that I've read to you twice now, did you notice anything unusual or interesting about it? I think one of the most interesting and I'm sure most important features is that it does not mention us doing anything. Did you notice? Not one of our acts, not one even of our mental states, not one exercise of our will, not even believing, although he mentions that a little bit later. This brief description that I just read to you twice is from first to last an account of what God did, that God the Father has done and Christ has done and the Holy Spirit has done for us and even in us. My translation captures the forceful, the forceful word order of the original, um, smoothed out in the NIV and some other paraphrases, and they, that, 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 that reads very nice. It's, an, it's a little bit awkward, but it, it is a forceful word order. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, not because of righteousness, not because of righteous things we have done, he saved us. So uh, he, he's, uh, he's putting this phrase up front. In other words, the first thing that Paul wants us to know is that we didn't do it, we didn't do any of it. And then he describes the salvation as the divine work of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from first to last. Christ appeared, he says. We had nothing to do with that. Uh, we were washed and renewed. We had nothing to do with that. We were justified by his grace. We had nothing to do with that. We became heirs of eternal life. Uh, nothing about us, our mental state, our heart. It was the entire work of the triune God, the free gift that gets the spotlight here. It is all divine action, no human action. And just to break it down for a moment, I'll show you that this is uh, Trinitarian, about God the Father, then about God the Holy Spirit, and then God, God the Son, our Savior. So briefly here, first in verses 4 through 5, about God. Why would God want to save the kind of people we just read about in verse 3, a people dominated by their 
ungodliness and the lusts of the world, and what hope would people have that God might save them? Paul identifies three things, three reasons in verses 4 through 5. Do you see? God's kindness, God's love toward man, God's mercy. Negatively, as I say, Paul wants to make clear what is not the basis of our salvation, not by works of righteousness, which we have done. As a matter of fact, the previous verses are just full of unrighteousness. Well, if you're here today and you need that forgiveness, this must be absolutely clear. It is not by good works. It is for good works. Clearly, he says that no less than three times in these few verses. God saves us not because we deserve to be saved. We did not, but because he is kind because he is loving, because he is merciful. God the Father. Second, you notice that he speaks about God the Holy Spirit in verses 5 and 6. He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ. This is a reference to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that spiritual cleansing or washing, which brings us two things here, new birth or regeneration, and renewing this new principle of life. Um, the water baptism is, of course, the sign of these things. The emphasis here is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is the reality. If we are saved, it is not by works of righteousness but then you say, well, why would Christians even bother to do works of righteousness? I mean, if we are justified by his grace, why do anything? It's an important question in the history of the church. If God uh, simply forgives our sins freely, why shouldn't we continue serving those various lusts and pleasures? Well, the answer is he has given us not only this forgiveness that he mentions here, but also the gift of the Holy Spirit who gives us a new heart, and a new life, that this God who saves us continues to change us from the inside out. This is the promise of God. He will put a new heart and a new spirit within you, and his, your sins and lawless deeds he will remember no more. This is the role of the Holy Spirit. This is the reason why we cannot abide in sin anymore. We have not only a new birth, but a new life, this renewing. All right. And thirdly, you notice in verses 6 and 7, he speaks about the work of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become the heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We're to believe in Jesus, our Savior. But what does this mean, justified by his grace? Uh, and interestingly, you would, you would have expected him to say justified by faith, as he does on virtually every other occasion. But here... Now, faith isn't even mentioned. You aren't mentioned at all. It is by his grace. Uh, emphasis, again, hard emphasis on God's work. There's a connection here that's difficult to represent in English, that justified and righteous are two forms of the same word in practically every other language, including in Greek. We have this awkward situation where we have a Latin word and a German word uh, root combined together, but the, 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 but the point of it here is that we are not saved by righteousness we have done, but we are righteousified by his grace, if that were a word, through what Christ has done. Um, justified in the legal sense, which Paul 
practically always uses means to declare righteous. Uh, Deuteronomy 25, if there's a dispute from, before, um, between men, the judges uh, judge them. They must justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. Justifying is the opposite of condemning. If somebody is righteous, the God should justify them. That is, declare them righteous. It doesn't make them righteous. It declares them righteous. Like if somebody is wicked, they need to condemn him as wicked. Not that that makes them wicked, but it does hold them guilty. Well, uh, God justifies us. He declares us not guilty. He vindicates us. He declares us right by his grace. Something extremely important to understand about Christianity. God is a just judge. How can he justify the wicked, the ungodly? By his grace, it says, but how does that work? God is a just judge. How can he overlook sin? Well, he does not. Your sins are paid for. And through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has, of course, suffered the penalty for your sins, given you his own righteousness, you may be justified. Or as Spurgeon so beautifully describes this union we spoke about this morning, he wore my crown, the crown of thorns. I wear his crown, the crown of glory. He wore my dress, nay, rather, he wore my nakedness, when he died upon the cross. I wear his robes, the royal robes of the king of kings. He bore my shame, I bear his honor. He endured my sufferings to the end that my joy may be full and that his joy may be fulfilled in me. He laid in the grave that I might rise from the dead and that I may dwell in him. And all this he comes again to give me, to make it sure to me and to all that love his appearing to show that all his people shall enter into their inheritance. Amen. Well, the emphasis here, therefore, is that because of the mighty work of Jesus, dying on behalf of the guilty, suffering the wages of sin, which is death, that we can become the righteousness of God in him. So justified by his grace. And let me just mention something else before I go on. Um, Most of the time, our salvation is described in other words because, of course, there's a human element in it. In Paul's lengthy discussion of justification, for example, in Romans or in Hebrews, the relentless emphasis on the necessity of perseverance in the faith, we are taught clearly there will be no salvation, no eternal life, Unless one believes in Jesus and continues to believe in Jesus, our faith, our repentance, our obedience is all a part of how salvation comes to us and how we live it out. So those things have their place. But occasionally, salvation is described and I think must be described without any reference to the human element so that we will not be confused and that we must know that salvation is of the Lord from first to last. Anything else, even our perseverance, is because he preserves his people. He began a good work. He will complete it. The faith by which we are justified is a gift, and therefore we cannot boast. Salvation is so much God's gift and so much God's work that it can be described and is described in the Bible without any reference to us. What we think, what we say, what we pray, 
what we do. And no wonder then we should find texts like this in the Bible, as the church has often slipped into a way of thinking that magnifies the human element, as though God has done his work in building the machinery of salvation, and now you must operate it. And such views distort the true gospel, the understanding of salvation, which is the work of sovereign grace, not of man who wills or of man who runs, but of God that has mercy. And so we have from place to place these texts sprinkled throughout the Bible that talk about salvation entirely as God's gift, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, without mentioning once anything that we must do. If it is right for you sometimes to say such things that you've believed in Christ, that you chose to follow him, that you continue and uh, walk with him, well, that is, that is absolutely right, and that is a good way of speaking. However, we are reminded that supremely, the one-sidedness that we must have, if we are to have it, is that God has entered in to our lives, has broken in like he did to the Apostle Paul, and taught us, and led us, given us that light which we were able to see the beauty of Christ and to desire him, to lay hold of him, to receive eternal life from him by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the way that the text such as ours today corrects any one-sidedness in our thinking. Only Christianity says so forthrightly, so honestly, there is nothing you could ever do to win the favor and salvation of God. Your sins are much too great. God is too holy. If there is any hope of your peace with God, it is because God has intervened, doing for men what they could never do for themselves. This is the good news. A summon for men and women, ultimately, to look away from themselves to a great and good God, that even the faith by which we are saved is laying hold of Christ, turning to God in Christ, seeing him intervening on behalf of dead sinners, receiving eternal life from him. This good news is about what God has done and how he has saved us and that we would never have done it for ourselves. Titus 1, 1 through 3. Titus 3, 1 through 3. All right, that's, the, that's what's beginning our work, the power of the gospel. But now we're going to consider the product, the result, which is clearly good works. And that's how Paul turns the corner. After saying, not of our works, he now will put it here in proper place. Verse 8 this is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. You notice it's also in verse 1. You notice it's also in verse, mm, uh, verse 14. Let our people learn to maintain good works and so forth. Okay, so having believed, having been justified, we must now consider one other thing, how we must devote ourselves to godliness in the matter of good works. Remember that God has saved us from something, but he's also saved us for something. Salvation is absolutely not of works, but it is for good works, as he puts it elsewhere. 
or even chapter 2, verse 14. He gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and positively purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. This is the emphasis here, the proper place of these things. When anyone receives the grace of God, his whole outlook on life must change. His life must change. It is the greatest thing in the world to learn that before the foundation of the world, God has loved me. That on the cross, Jesus gave himself for me. That the Holy Spirit came and gave me life from the dead in which I will forever rejoice and live as a child of God. To know this is to see one's life in utterly different terms and to cause us spontaneously to give glory to God and to make one's daily calling, therefore, to honor and please the one who has so loved me. Walter Marshall, uh, known really for only a single book, The Gospel Mystery of Sanctification, says, therefore, we must first receive the comforts of the gospel that we may perform the duties of the law. So you see, when somebody grasps what this amazing grace a life is transformed. Those who have believed such things must be careful to devote themselves to good works. And these are the things that make God exceedingly great. Is it then too much that we should live for making him greater and greater in our lives? This makes his love surpassingly wonderful, his plan and purpose amazing and marvelous. These things make Christ supremely beautiful, the Holy Spirit to be precious life-giving beyond words. This is the uniqueness of the Christian faith. And so it's precisely here that the Christian message separates itself so profoundly and beautifully from every other religion and philosophy. I mean, Paul knows it personally. Before Paul became a Christian, before the grace of God changed him, he was a very religious man. He boasted in his good works. He was self-satisfied, self-righteous, proud of his morality. But when he met Christ, he learned that all of that was worth nothing. In fact, he calls it rubbish or, frankly, dung. Not only could he not answer for his sins, he couldn't even answer for his righteousness, as hollow and as heartless as it was. It was not done to please God as he had thought. It was, it was done against God. The zeal that had consumed him had led him from city to city to destroy the Christians. The foundation of the tremendous change in our author was God's amazing grace. And what a change it made. So, dear friends, with you and me, you can't believe that God sent his Son into the world to suffer the death of the cross in order that we who believe in him might have eternal life. You cannot believe that this God has now lavished his love on utterly undeserving sinners like you and me. You cannot believe that God has mightily come to a sinner's life to transform it. You can't believe such things and then remain the same. For once you know what God has done, what Christ has suffered, what the Holy Spirit has birthed in you, It must compel you to present your bodies a living sacrifice to God, as we read elsewhere. So Alexander White, in his beautiful way in Bunyan's characters, writes, Give me a passionate man, a hot-headed man, one that is headstrong and unmanageable, and with faith 
as a grain of mustard seed, I will, by degrees, make that man as quiet as a lamb. Then give me a covetous man, an avaricious man, a miserly man, and with a little faith, working like leaven in his heart, I will yet make him a perfect spendthrift for the church of Christ and for the poor. Then give me one who is mortally afraid of pain, and one who all his days is in bondage through fear of death. And let that spirit of faith once enter and take its seat in his heart and his imagination. And he shall, in a short time, despise all your crosses and flames. Show me a man with an unclean heart, and I will undertake by his faith in Christ to make him whiter than snow, till he will not even know himself to be the same man. This faith is, as many have said, the power of God at the disposal of man. And that how the Christian life is to be lived. We believe that God who saves us by his kindness, by this love toward man and mercy, in the Holy Spirit who gives us new hearts, new birth, new life, in Jesus Christ our Savior, who gives us his crown of righteousness for, our, for the crown of thorns that we deserve, that we are now called to come and to glorify him in the earth by good works. And so, in conclusion, it must be only as this spirit-filled, Christ-redeemed, father-loved person that you can do anything you are called to do. During the downgrade controversy, as it was called, among the Baptists in England, Charles Spurgeon prophetically said, Puritan morals will not last without Puritan faith. You can't get rid of the faith and maintain the fruit and how right he was. Paul makes the same point about false teachers here in this very letter, chapter 116. These who profess to know God but in works deny him, abominable, disobedient, disqualified for every good work. They must have their mouths closed, their false teachings stopped. He goes on to explain, chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, that God's grace teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. Rather, Christ has given himself for us, verse 14, to purify for himself a people zealous for good deeds. Heresy is usually, at least at the outset, some mixture of truth and error. It draws from the well certain popular ideas. It breathes the air of its time. It's always easy to believe a heresy. In the nature of the case, it's intended even to make Christianity easier to believe in a way. It was so in Titus's day, but the presence of error, unchallenged, uncorrected, eventually, like leaven, corrupts the whole. It was this way in Israel that simply first wanted to worship the Lord in a way that was suitable to their conventions of the day. And in a short time, they were found bowing down to wood and stone, sacrificing their children to Moloch in the valley of Hittim. And so it was that mission-minded people in the 20th century, sincere Christians who did not want theological arguments to get in the way of reaching the world, have left behind a church in so many quarters that has no message to give it, 
In fact, there are no missionaries in so many of those churches now to take it in any case, and no passion for the gospel that is likely to produce such missionaries in the future. Uh, an article from the New Yorker a few years ago puts it this way about the Episcopal Church, which could easily be said about practically any mainline church. It is committed to a gospel so vague and so spectral that false teaching is now impossible. The only heresy is to say that there is such a thing as heresy. But no church committed to a vague gospel can be Christian in any biblical sense, ultimately. Paul won't have it. No lives will be transformed in such churches, no hearts drawn to Christ, no sins forgiven, no feet set on the way of eternal life, no lives cheerfully surrendered to the authority of God, and no good works befitting repentance will be done. All has been lost, the truth and the people who depend upon it. In countless churches all over the land where the gospel was once preached with faith and power, it is now denied. And there you will find in many cases for generations people who still remain with some form of godliness but who have denied its power. And you will not find that the Christian life in the fullness of good works remains. I know that some of you are thinking this is not very relevant to me and to my life. Perhaps I just need to be encouraged in the faith and good works. True enough. But you notice even the emphasis in the, at the end of this chapter, this matter of holding fast to the true faith will have more to do with your life and salvation and your fruitfulness than any spiritual encouragement I could give you at this moment. Doctrine determines practice. Bad doctrine, says the apostle, produces bad living, bad works. Sound doctrine produces godliness, good works. These things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works, which are good and profitable to men. True religion is not of works, but for good works. And no religion as ours ever laid man so low as to make him utterly dependent upon God and his grace. As we find in this book, Paul has rested our entire salvation on God. But he says these good works, though they are not the root, they are most definitely the fruit. They are not the way of our salvation, but they are the walk in the way of salvation. This God who has saved us by his grace leads us by his grace in the paths of righteousness for his own sake. The God who chose us before the foundation of the world and predestined us to adoption and saved us by his grace has prepared good works beforehand that we should walk in them, Ephesians 2. So the Bible says that when we have been created in Christ Jesus, we have been created in him for good works. And where there's a healthy life in a tree, the tree will bear fruit according to its kind. If the tree is good, the fruit will be good. If the, if the fruit is bad, Jesus says, it's because the tree is, in fact, a bad tree. Or to change the picture, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, the same bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Well, being created in Christ Jesus for good works, that God prepared beforehand, we should walk in them we find again that these things are the fruit of Jesus, who is the root. To make salvation of our works is not just to put the cart before the horse, but to demand bricks without straw. 
And when Christians, however, walk with determination, devotion, and desire in good works, as imperfect as they are, as poor as our obedience is, when we keep his commandments and serve him and aspire to do his will for his sake, when we love him in his holiness and hate sin in whatever measure, when we are following the Lord in Christ's footsteps and mourn over our failures and begin again and again because we love him, then we are making this doctrine of God our Savior attractive. There is more and more of this life for us to live, these commandments to keep, this service to render to God and man. And we have not only been summoned to it, but we are promised all the grace and power that we will need to live out this better half of our salvation, as McShane called it. It's all his gift. Without him, we can do nothing. From him and through him and to him are all things. But let us, therefore, having embraced this gift, be careful to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs, that we be not unfruitful. And the grace of God, through Jesus Christ, be with us all. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we again thank you that you have manifested such grace and goodness to the world. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to you belong our salvation entirely. Salvation is of the Lord. May you continue that goodness in us. May we who have been redeemed and purified by that sacrifice of Christ be fruitful and zealous for these things we desire.